So we've said this now multiple times over the last number of weeks, that the gospel changes everything. And the way in which the gospel changes everything is that it changes who we are. We talked about signs and wonders, but one of the most supernatural of all events occurs when a person bends their knee to King Jesus, whereby they become a sign and wonder in this world. In John's gospel, Jesus describes this change as being born again. In Paul's letter to the Colossians, he describes it as being us being delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the, to the kingdom of his beloved son, meaning that our citizenship changes. Paul describes this change by saying in his letter to the Ephesians that we have been predestined for adoption, making us all sons and daughters of God. We belong to a new family. Our text this morning in Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 30, it builds on what we looked at last week as the gospel breaks ground in new territory where people from different places, belief systems, and cultures reside. What we see happening is that instead of reinforcing those lines of demarcation, those boundary markers actually begin to blur. And for the onlookers, a new identity emerges, one consisting of individuals who would normally not go together, an identity marked by the name of Christ. And so what we must walk away understanding this morning is that who we are, our deepest desires, our cultural baggage, the stories we all possess, the good, the bad, and the ugly, are all in submission to our family name, the name of Christ. And it's from that place and identity that we are called to live, run, live from. When we finally understand that, we will see how the gospel indeed changes everything, including the way we view ourselves and the world around us. All right, so let's jump into our text. Verses, 11, uh, verses 19 through 21, two paths forward, the first point in your outline. Um, let's take a look. Now, these who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, or the Greeks, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believe had turned to the Lord. So first things, right? They're in Antioch. couple things about Antioch. It was the third largest urban center of the Roman Empire after Rome and Alexandria. And Rome actually gave this particular city um, the status of free city, meaning that it, it essentially self-governed itself, which is redundant, right? It was known for its religious diversity, which meant that Jews were able to practice their faith without all that much pushback. It was a fairly integrated city, meaning that it, was allowed, it allowed for the interaction between differing groups. All that to say, in the words of one Bible commentator, it was a natural place for Jewish Christians to settle following the persecution that resulted from Stephen's martyrdom. So a couple of observations. Our passage begins with the words, now those who were scattered. And those are the exact same words that we saw in chapter 8, verse 4, when Philip 
went to Samaria and proclaimed the good news of Jesus. There, a first barrier was being broken down between Jewish people and the rest of the world. The gospel went to Samaria. If you remember the Great Commission, Jesus said that you will be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so what we see here is that Luke is actually circling back in the story. He's going back to where we left off after Stephen's martyrdom. He told the story of Paul. He told the story of Peter bringing the gospel to Cornelius. And now we're circling back. And so what do we see happening when these particular, um, these particular people that were coming from Judea head into this new place? Well, there's two groups, right? One group spoke the word to no one except Jews, while there was this other group who spoke to the Hellenists or the Greeks. A couple of other observations. These men of Cyprus and Cyrene are unnamed, which is important. Keep that in the back of your head for a minute. And then what happens is that the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So what's the point here? What are we getting at? Well, here's the deal, right? There's two groups of people. One group who is holding on to their identity as a Jew and another group who is allowing their Jewishness to bow in submission to their identity in Christ. See, two groups of people. One has a very strong memory of who they are and all the traditions that they upheld. In fact, they understood so much of who they were that they forgot who they became. They forgot the words that were spoken to them and most likely passed down to them from the apostles that the gospel was to go forth from Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth because what they did is that they spoke to no one, speaking the word to no one except for the Jews. But then there's this other group of people. There's this other group of people who remembers who they are. They remember that they have been been grafted into a new family, one consisting of all the nations of the earth, and they remember who they are, and they make their decisions based on their identity. See, see, the gospel changes our identity. It brings us into a new family. It gives us a new heart. It transfers us from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his son. This is what the gospel does. And this is what we see unfolding in the lives of these early Christians. They're still wrestling with that identity. They're still trying to wrap their minds around where this thing is heading. One one scholar says it like this, not everyone who believes in Jesus is ready for newness. Not everyone who follows the Savior can come into the unanticipated places of the Spirit's work. Some saints don't like surprises. Some saints don't like surprises. And isn't that still the case? Isn't that still the case that we struggle with newness? We struggle with disassociating ourselves from some, from some of these underlying identities, forgetting that the main identity that we should be living from is the name of Christ. Because here's the deal, what discipleship does, and I'm going to be a little all over the place because I'm holding this mic and I'm, I'm all over, but it's okay. See, what discipleship is, right, it actually is, is, it teaches us, one, who God is, it teaches us then who we are, and then it tells us how we should live in light of both of those realities. 
And see, remember, when we come to faith, we become saints. We still speak in the accent of sinner, but we become saints. And our God is Yahweh, the one that is spoken of throughout the scriptures. And how we live actually provides us with the answer to both those questions. Do we really know who our God is, and do we really know who we are? What we see in the text unfolding before us is that there's two groups. One forgot who they were and who their God was, and the other remembered, and they went and proclaimed the gospel to Gentiles, to Greeks, to the Hellenists. Which identity are we choosing to live from? What story are we allowing to shape our lives? We're going to keep talking about this throughout the rest of our morning couple other things, right? There's this faithful group and they're unnamed. I kind of love that. kind of love that the faithful ones are unnamed and they go and they do the thing that God calls them to. Are we willing to lead those quiet and peaceful lives with our hands to the plow, proclaiming the Christ and trusting him with the increase, regardless of whether or not we receive the fanfare? Our identity is going to tell us everything about the answer to that question. What we lean on is going to tell us everything about the answer to that question. The text goes on, verses 23 through 26, from persecutor to pastor. It reads as follows. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and he saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarshish to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch for a whole year. They met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. A couple things here. So first thing, right, Jerusalem hears what's going on, and they send Barnabas to check it out. They send Barnabas to kind of check it out. Now, I'm not saying that they don't trust what's going on, but they want to confirm what's going on. They want to understand because in their heads, they're wrestling with identity as well. Is the gospel really going to Gentiles? Is that really what's happening? Make no mistake, Luke knew what he was doing when he put the story of Cornelius right before the gospel going to Antioch. It doesn't necessarily mean that these things were happening contemporaneously, but it does mean that for us as readers, we're to understand that Luke is trying to tell a story here. He's trying to get into our heads that this gospel, this new thing that is emerging is for the nations. And so they're back in Jerusalem and they're wondering, is this real? Is this actually happening? Let's send Barnabas to check it out. Remember who Barnabas was. He's the son of encouragement. He's the positive example from chapter 4 compared to the negative of Ananias and Sapphira. He's the guy who defended Saul to Jerusalem when they were all like, whoa, 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 this guy was like dragging Christians to jail. Are you sure we should trust him, Barnabas? Like, yeah, yeah, no, he's good. He's good. He's my guy. And then we see in our text here that he was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And what does he do? He gets to work at what he is best at. He he exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. 
He actually recognized probably his weakness or his need, and he goes and calls for Saul, who's down in Tarshish. He says, Saul, I need your help. Can you come with me? I got a group of new Christians in a new place under pagan sort of ideals and, and, and philosophy, and, and we need to teach them a few things. Will you come with me and teach them? Saul says yes, and the two of them remain for a year. See, this is, again, the importance of discipleship. These, this church, this multi-ethnic community that we're seeing emerge, it's filled with Jews and Gentiles. What, what, um, what Barnabas recognizes as he takes a look, he's like, they need to grow in their faith. They need to understand who they are, who God is, and what it looks like to live in light of that. They need to know who they are, who God is, and what it looks like to live in light of that. So he calls for help from Saul, and they spend a year teaching. One scholar says this, when people move from a community with one kind of culture into one that is quite different, very often their moral intuitions no longer match the reality around them. If you remember when you first became a Christian, there were probably things that confused you about the church. There were probably things about holiness that confused you about what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. I remember when I first became a Christian, I was somewhere around junior, senior year in high school, and I remember saying to my mom, I'm like, so I, I, can't, get, I can't get drunk anymore? Is that what this means? Like, I don't understand what it means to be a Christian because my world was changing right before my eyes, and I didn't understand. I needed to be taught. I needed to be, I needed my, my new identity to be explained to me. What does it mean to be a Christian? Who is this God and how should I live in light of it? These new converts needed to learn that they were no longer to identify with whatever story they were coming from, but rather this new story and by this new name. And the cool thing is, is that they embodied that identity so much that onlookers began referring to them as Christian or the party of the executed Judean king. In Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So like I said, this means of the party of Christ. Most likely, it was a term of derision or disrespect. And it's used only three times in the New Testament, and it's always with a negative connotation. But if you read between the lines, see, the onlookers saw a group of people comprised of both Jew and Gentile living in light of a new story and a new identity, regardless of the intention behind the title. The very fact that this group was coming together and becoming known means that their identity as followers of the crucified Judean prophet was obvious. They belonged to Christ, and there was no mistaking that. They belonged to Christ, and there was no mistaking that. Remember a number of years back, the movie came out when I was um, probably around... 2004-ish, the movie Miracle about the 1980 um, U.S. hockey team when they won the gold medal. Um, they beat the Russians, and then they went on to win the gold medal. And, and if, has anyone ever seen that, story, that, that movie? Has anyone lived the story? I didn't live the story. I was born in 1982. <laughs> 
Anyway, there's this incredible scene where they're practicing, and, and, and the team was comprised of a bunch of different players from, from different colleges, because back then, the Olympics was for amateurs, right? And so they were all from different colleges, and, and there was a little bit of a grudge match between two of the schools, and, and a fight breaks out in the middle of the practice, and Herb Brooks, who was the coach, kind of looks at him, he's like, what are you guys doing? What is this? This isn't hockey. He says a few other choice words, but neither here nor there. He's like, this isn't hockey. This isn't what we're, we're here to do. This isn't going to win the Olympics. See, in those days, they had no intention of winning the Olympics. They knew they couldn't beat Russia. And so they were kind of like, oh, whatever, we're here. It's going to be fun, whatever. But, but Herb Brooks had a different goal in mind. And so he asked them a question. He wanted them to get to know each other. He says, like, who are you guys? Where, you know, where are you from? And they kind of all say their names. My name's so-and-so. Um, I'm from here. And I play for, and they would insert the name of their college. And then as the story goes on, there's another scene where, again, he asks them what team they play for. And if you remember this scene, they're skating back and forth for what seems like hours, where Herb Brooks keeps saying again, again, again. And finally, Michael Ruzioni, Italian guy, which makes sense. He stands up and he says, my name is Michael Ruzioni. I play for the United States of America. See, he got it. He got it. He understood who his identity, who he was, what team he played for. There's a scene in that movie where Herb Brooks says that the name on the front of the jersey is a lot more important than the one on the back. See, they did not understand their identity. And when they finally got it, the story takes a sharp turn. All of a sudden, they become a hockey team. They end up winning the Olympics, and it's a beautiful story. But my point in telling you that story is that when we don't know who we are, when we don't know who we play for, when we don't get the point, we're no longer living our lives in light of Christ and his kingdom. See, the question needs to be asked of us, what team do you play for? What, what, what name is on the front of our jersey, namely the name of Jesus? And so that's what it means to be a follower of Christ. Interesting thing here is that the same persecution that brought um, these, these, these Jewish Christians to Antioch was the persecution that started through the hands of Saul. And here he is now pastoring them. Here he is teaching them about their identity. See, Saul's a guy who understands identity. Saul's a guy who understands that everything changes with the gospel. Everything changes. He becomes a new creation. He goes to the very people he hated. And now he's teaching them what it means to walk with Jesus. He spends an entire year with them teaching them what it means to walk with Jesus. Redeemer Fellowship, these are the things we need to wrestle with. Who are we? Who are we collectively as the body of Christ? And who are we individually? Which story are we living in light of? See, identity is everything. Identity is everything. Are we, are we relying on our deepest desires to fuel how we live? Are we relying on some sort of trauma that we've experienced in our past to determine how we live today? Not to say that these things aren't important, but they are not the stories that shape us. There's a new story that needs to be shaping us. Are we, are we living in light of a political reality? Identity, excuse me. Identity is everything. What happens when we become Christians is we are brought into union with Christ. 
and we become sons and daughters of the living God. We are adopted into the family of God. We are justified before God. We are being sanctified before God, meaning we are being made more and more holy, and we are glorified. That means we are one day going to be face-to-face with King Jesus, and we will be the truly human ones we were always intended to be as we are brought into union with him. Our identity is everything. And these early Christians were understanding it. They were getting it. They were getting it. And they needed to be reminded. They needed to be taught. They needed to be encouraged and challenged. And they needed to deconstruct from their old identities. That doesn't mean that when we come to faith, we forget everything about us. See, one, one, one writer, he says this, he says, Jesus might live in our hearts, but grandpa still lives in our bones, meaning that there are stories that still shape who we are, whether they're family stories, whether they're ethnic and socioeconomic stories, whatever the case may be, but all of those bow in submission to King Jesus. All of those bow in submission to King Jesus. And what we see and what I read from Revelation chapter 7 is that in glory, all the peoples of the earth are going to be seated around the same table. But see, it doesn't say that they all are this like monolithic sort of, sort of homogenous sort of group. See, see, he names the nations. They're all there, and, and, and they're all going to be there. See, we were ta- I'm going to be Italian is basically what I'm getting at in heaven. Praise the Lord. I'm going to be Italian in heaven. See, we don't get rid of our ethnicities. We don't get rid of our race. We don't get rid of the things that shaped us, but they are to be viewed through the lens of the resurrected king. That's what's so important. And as you look at the world around us right now, what we're seeing is this battle of identities. We're seeing people living in light of the wrong identities. Again, they matter, they shape who we are, but they all bow in submission to King Jesus, every single one of them. That is so vitally important for us to understand. That's so important for our children to understand. I talk about this with my kids. Like, like you're, you're a Christian. That's what matters most. That's what matters most. And every single one of our other stories, they bow in submission to King Jesus. The text continues in verses 27 through 30. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Again, some observations from Jerusalem to Antioch. Right, there's this interesting thing sort of happening between these two cities. There's a sense of camaraderie developing between these two missional outposts. And this is, this is really unlikely in the ancient world that, that these Jewish Christians in Jerusalem would be associating and, and hanging out with these, these, these Gentile Christians from Antioch. But we see that the gospel's breaking down barriers. And then there's this guy, Agabus, one of the prophets, and he foretells of a great famine that will cover all the earth. Now, interestingly enough, there is historical evidence of a famine during the reign of Claudius. Now, while it's possible that this wasn't a worldwide famine, as Luke often employs hyperbole in telling his story, it was significant enough to be talked about by both Josephus and Tacitus, two historians of the ancient world. And also, the disciples in Antioch 
They determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. So a couple things that pop out as I kind of list those observations that I noticed. One thing is that giving is for everyone, not just the rich. I love that, right? It says it right here that they were to, where am I at? Disciples determined everyone according to his ability. See, that means not everyone is able to give massive amounts of, of financial support to the mission of the church. We, we know that. Everyone's different, right? But everyone is called to give according to the scriptures, each according to their ability. Now, that giving should probably affect our budgets, right? It should be something that, that affects the way we live our lives. A couple other things that, that pop out is the use of this term send. It actually frames the narrative. We see it in verse 22, and then it pops up again in verse 30. And the interesting thing is that Jerusalem sends Barnabas to kind of check things out. Antioch, possibly a year or so later, they're sending help. And so, so Antioch is getting it. They're understanding. This is so cool. We belong to this new family of God. Let's send them help. Let's send them help. There's a famine coming. And the interesting thing about this is that the famine most likely affected Antioch too, yet they're sacrificially giving to this movement up in Judea. Why? Because they know who they are. They know who their God is. And they're living in light of that truth. Their identity is being shaped by the gospel, so much so that they're willing to give sacrificially. And what does it say? They're going to give to the brothers, meaning that they recognize that this is family, that they all belong to the same people of God. They have a new identity. They're living in light of a new story. They've been adopted into a new family. See, the point is that this church, a little over a year old, has come to understand that they belong to something larger than themselves. See, they got that the name on the front of the jersey is more important than the one on the back. And it is that sense of belonging and the story that birthed this new family of God that pushes them to give sacrificially, knowing that not only will Judea experience famine, but they too will experience famine. Identity is everything. It changes everything. Every single decision we make needs to be sifted through that, that filter of, I'm a Christian now. I belong to the family of God now. And again, that means that those desires that maybe we have deep down past trauma that we have, that, that we've experienced, any sort of national, ethnic, or racial pride that we might have needs to all bow in submission to the fact that we belong to King Jesus now. And that's why Paul writes so much in his epistles about the unity of the church. Because what he's expressing to the people in all of these messed up churches, and, and if they were messed up back then, sure is we're messed up now, right? And what we need to hear are the same things that were being spoken about some 2,000 years ago, that we belong to the family of God. 
that our identity has been, has been drastically changed and that now everything that we are, everything that we were, all the deepest desires of our hearts, anything that we might have experienced bows in submission to King Jesus because we have been given a new name, the name that is above every name. We are Christians. And whether that is said to us in a mocking way, whether we are excited to be called Christians, whatever the case may be, that's our identity now. We belong to a new family. We have been adopted, grafted in, all those things. We have been born again. We are followers of Jesus, and we are seated around the same table. And that is a beautiful thing. And that's the reality that we need to live in light of. That's the reality. And what a beautiful reality it is. And if we are people who are doing that, then we will be able to show the world what God is like. That is just how it will happen. And then we will be able to give a reason for the hope that is within us. See, see I think about apologetics, and apologetics is the study of defending the faith, and often I think, like, are we supposed to go out there and have debates with people? And, and the more and more I read, the more and more I study, I'm inclined to think, no, not really. I think that as we are living our lives, as we are making disciples, we're caring for one another, that people are going to catch a glimpse of this thing, and then they might ask us, what, what's that all about? Why do you do that? Why do you raise your kids in this certain way? And then we need to be ready to give an answer for the hope that is within us. And our answer is, well, because I know who I am, I know who my God is, and I'm choosing to live in light of that. See, my God is the God of, of Israel. He's, he's Jesus, the one who's seated on the throne. He came and lived and died for my sins. He rose again and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And, and when I bent my knee to him, when I put my faith in him, I was born again, and I was given a new name. And so, therefore, I'm living my life differently. I'm going to care for my neighbor. I'm going to care for my family. I'm going to care for my church family. I'm going to give sacrificially. I'm going to, to, to just love God and love neighbor. And you can come along with me if you so desire. You too need to just bend your knee to King Jesus and your sins will be forgiven and you'll be adopted into this new family, this motley crew that we call the church. What a beautiful story the story of God is. What a beautiful story it is. Right, so where are we here? That first group of Christians who fled Jerusalem because of persecution. They decided to embrace their Savior and his mission by extending hope beyond Israel and into the world around him. They bucked against their cultural, ethnic, and social identities to, to embrace their identity as followers of Jesus. The life of this church was so marked by Jesus that onlookers mockingly referred to them as Christians. And finally, this infant church was so caught up in their identity as followers of Jesus that they sacrificially gave each according to his ability to the needs in Judea, recognizing them as family. Jews and Gentiles were seated at the same table sharing in the same cup of redemption as the dividing walls of hostility were broken down, birthing this new and beautiful community known as the church. The name of Christ is what matters. It is the lens through which we must view everything and the center from which everything we do and are must flow. We belong to Jesus. We belong 
to Jesus. That is our name. That is our family name. That's a beautiful story. That is good, good news. I'm, I'm, I'm overwhelmingly grateful that I belong to this family of God. I'm overwhelmingly grateful that my sins have been forgiven, that I can sit at the table with brothers and sisters from every single walk of life. That's good news. That's the gospel. And like we've said over and over again throughout the course of this series, the gospel changes everything. The gospel changes everything. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for this precious truth, this beautiful new story that we have been invited to live in, to live from. Father, we love you so much. We love you more than anything, Lord God. We thank you that you sent your son Jesus to live and die and that he was risen from the dead, Lord, so that we might have life, Lord God, the firstborn of new creation, Lord God. And that we too, Lord, will taste that new creation when we step into eternity, Lord God. Death is not the final note, Lord God, but rather it is the beginning of eternity that we will spend with you. God, we love you with all of our hearts. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.